But <clears throat> we have one more after this, and we'll be looking at the practical aspects of this. So we're going to do a quick review and then jump into the history tonight. Now, but before we do, we need to realize that this is a historic day at Bay Presbyterian Church. I understand that there was a unanimous vote for a new senior pastor and a new assistant pastor. That's quite remarkable. That happened today. Did you know that? And so what I understand is that there's this old, worn-out pastor. He's been languishing for years, hoping that he might have a little relief because Bay Presbyterian has been driving him so hard. And so he was praying, Lord, would you send me a knight in shining armor? And lo and behold, lo and behold, a knight showed up. And he said, here am I, Lord, send me. But what in the world are you doing? You shouldn't call me. I'm the wrong guy. But at any rate, he's now in the chair. And you got a new assistant pastor. Isn't that amazing? And praise the Lord for his provision and answered prayer. Isn't that great? Praise God. <laughs> in my mind, I have more hair than that picture. <laughs> Well, John, we'll quickly move along then, okay? <laughs> well, we're rejoicing today. I'm, I'm so thrilled that I have a, a joyful memory of being here for the vote because I've known John for, what, 15, 16 years already. As the church was just getting started, so it's been kind of a privilege to watch the church develop, have a little small role in praying and encouraging you, and then to see this transition moment. You know, this is... Like, this is my home church in Florida, so I praise God. I didn't get to vote. I tried to vote. I actually brought two bags of votes from Philadelphia, and I said, John, which do you want me to put in the hopper? And he was, we're really good at that in Philadelphia. I just want you to know. We've got it down to a science, so it wasn't needed today, so, but anyway, I was ready. Okay, quick review. Four distinct concepts of the doctrine of salvation, the history of salvation. So as you look at the title here, Union with Christ, the history of salvation is the sweep of what God has done from eternity past all the way to eternity future. It encompasses that entire sweep from God's eternal counsel to the state of glorification and passing through time. In the middle of that is what we call the accomplishment of redemption. When Jesus cried, it is finished. It is paid in full. It is completed. This is the work of redemption that only Christ could do. It's once for all completed. He's uniquely the redeemer of mankind. No one else can do this. But in time, his work is applied. It is applied to individual believers. It was applied to you, and you uh, know that when you came to faith. You said, I can't believe I'm excited about Jesus. How did this happen? That's called the new birth. But God was working before the new birth. Redemption was being applied. And so theologians have a phrase called the ordo salutis, which is the order of salvation. It's a logical order, not a chronological order per se, but it's the different pieces. The Bible reveals to us how God takes us from being lost in sin, and we are transitioned from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light of his dear son. Uh, we could look at all of that and spend a great deal of time. You notice, I said, let me draw a chart. I didn't have to draw it again because you saved it for me, so thank you. Now, I told you that I was using a, a John Murray's classic book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, as the basis of our consideration of union with Christ. 
And I remind you of some of his important quotes to help you to realize that everything we're looking at here, this entire chart, is subsumed under union with Christ. This is what union with Christ, it's everything. It is Jesus is all of it, and we are united to him. So here's what John Murray, the founding professor of biblical and systematic theology at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, wrote. Union with Christ is a very inclusive subject. The wide span of salvation from its ultimate source in the eternal election of God to its final fruition in the glorification of the elect from eternity to eternity. Not just a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies all of the application and accomplishment of redemption. And he says union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. I think that should get our attention. We really ought to think about this. This is the heart of what brings all of the truth of Jesus' saving work together. Now, I noted some of these verses. We looked at about a third of them very quickly last time just to get a little sense of their data. And we noted that the phrase that Paul loves to use is in Christ and with Christ. We're going to look at that a little bit more in a moment. And when we come to John's writings, John the Apostle, he will give us, for example, Jesus' teaching of the vine and the branches. The branches have no life unless they abide uh, in the vine. And he talks about our having fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. Fellowship is another word of union with Christ. Now, some of you know Phil Riken. Phil Riken used to serve on the board at Westminster before he went to serve as the president of Wheaton. Uh, he's a graduate of our seminary, but he wrote a lovely article uh, by, uh, I don't remember the precise date, published by Ligonier. You can find it online if you'd like to see this article. Okay? But he puts it this way. Believers often are said to be in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Sometimes this phrase passes by so rapidly that we may hardly notice, as in Paul's opening address to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. We just kind of gloss over that, but that's laden with meaning. But even such passing expressions are grounded in the deep spiritual truth of our faith union with Jesus Christ. The reason we are called saints in Christ is because our true and ultimate identity is found in him. You are all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. He goes on, as, this is really another way of summarizing what we looked at last time by John Murray. We're looking at it now from Phil Riken, a parallel thinker in our Reformed heritage. Uh, Dr. Riken writes, on other occasions, the Bible teaches the reciprocal principle that Jesus Christ is in the believer. It is no longer I who live, writes Paul, but Christ who lives in me in Galatians 2.20. Similarly, Paul wrote of the gospel mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, Colossians 1.26. What is this glorious mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. We need to let that sin in our minds and hearts for just a moment. Paul is saying that Jesus Christ dwells in us, and we are united to him. Both of those statements are true, and it is described as a mystery. How can that be, that the sovereign Lord of history lives in our lives? We are united to him. He dwells within us. In fact, we can go further. Dr. Riken puts it this way. 
Christ is in us and we are in Christ. The two sides of this mutual relationship sometimes appear together in Scripture. For example, in teaching his disciples about the vine and the branches, a metaphor for union with Christ, Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. Do you see the reciprocity? John 15, 4. Similarly, the apostle John described union with Christ as a double habitation by the Holy Spirit. Quoting 1 John 4, 13, we read, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We dwell in Christ, Christ dwells in us because the Holy Spirit makes both of those truths real. I need to stop and say, if I'm a believer in Christ, this is true of me right now. This is who you are. You are united to Christ, Christ is dwelling in you because the Holy Spirit has accomplished this through your salvation. Now, tonight we're going to be talking about history. So I'm going to give you some uh, look back at theologians who've tried to wrestle in different ways with this mystery. Uh, we have any Irish people out there tonight? Any Irish that like green more than orange? You know, that's always a debate, right? <laughs> Which part of Ireland you're from? Okay, well, St. Patrick allegedly drove all the snakes out of Ireland. We don't know if that's true or not. What we do know is that you can see that he tried to teach the Trinity and the famous... Uh, clover with the three leaves became one of the symbols of uh, St. Patrick. And in the middle, you can see that uh, wonderful statement about Christ, which we're going to look at tonight. So he would represent the end of the ancient church era. This is an ancient church theologian who had had exposure, obviously, to the Bible. He had read Paul's epistles. He had read the Gospels. He's a great evangelist bringing the hope of the gospel to all those pagans in Ireland, okay, bringing the gospel to people who are utterly lost, who didn't want Christianity to be there. It was a huge risk. And so we're going to look at him. Secondly, we're going to move from the ancient church to the medieval period. Remember, this is the historical lecture. So we're going to look at a medieval theologian by the name of Bernard of Clairvaux. We'll look at those quotes quickly later, but his date's 1090 to 1153. So just about the time of what we call the High Middle Ages is where Bernard of Clairvaux from France, and we should note, and we'll make this connection, John Calvin, the reformer of the Reformation, quotes Bernard on occasion very approvingly. So there's a direct connection in Calvin's thinking at some points with this medieval theologian. Okay? And so we will be looking at John Calvin as well, and you can see the medallion there. That was his motto, my heart I give you promptly and sincerely. That was Calvin's image. So we have uh, uh, Calvin to look at. So we're going to look at tonight three historical theologians on how do they deal with this idea of union with Christ, this mystery that Paul speaks about. Okay. So we go to St. Patrick first. The late 390s, he's born. He died about 460. So he was living uh, uh, over at least part of the time when the famous St. Augustine was teaching in North Africa. So some of us as uh, Reformed Christians will call ourselves Augustinians because we really appreciate a lot of Augustine. He was Calvin's favorite ancient theologian. Okay, that was Augustine. But perhaps you know St. Patrick's breastplate. We could call it his morning prayer. 
I highlight the words, I arise today. I'm just going to read it because it's magnificent. This was his prayer. It comes down from him. It might have been written by someone else, but tradition connects it with him, so it may well be this. But it goes like this. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. I arise today through the strength of Christ's birth with his baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion with his burial, through the strength of his resurrection with his ascension, through the strength of his descent for the judgment of doom. I arise today through the strength of the love of cherubim in the obedience of angels and the service of archangels in the hope of resurrection to meet with reward in the prayers of patriarchs and the predictions of prophets and the preaching of apostles and the faith of confessors and the innocence of holy virgins and the deeds of righteous men. My goodness, this guy is quite a poet and quite a theologian when you hear how he's put things together. Keeps going. He goes on to talk about the strength of God, his works, and God's word. He said, I arise today through the strength of heaven, the light of the sun, the radiance of the moon, the splendor of fire, the speed of lightning, the swiftness of wind, the depth of the sea, the stability of the earth, the firmness of rock. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me. He appreciated God's word. God's hand to guard me. God's shield to protect me. God's host to save me. From snares of devils, from temptation of vices, from everyone who shall wish me ill afar and near. Dangerous work to be a missionary in a pagan culture. And he therefore will summon help and he will take on a shield as he goes forth. I summon today all these powers between me and those evils against every cruel and merciless power that may oppose my body and soul against incantation of false prophets, against black laws of pagandom, against false laws of heretics, against craft of idolatry, against spells of witches and smiths and wizards, against every knowledge that corrupts man's body and soul. His shield, Christ to shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that there may come to me an abundance of reward. Now, this is where it goes from really brilliant to magnificent. Get ready, here it comes. Union with Christ according to St. Patrick. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. Now, that might be a great morning prayer for you to adopt every once in a while. It's magnificent. But you notice he's thinking about union with Christ. That's really the heart of it all, the breastplate and protection. Now, I understand this has been set to music, so I don't know if we have anybody who's going to try to sing it. Okay, well, Carol and Gordon, you have your homework for you now. Get the choir working on it. Okay, 
All right. Now, so as you look at that magnificent statement, did you notice anything that was missing? Sounded like he got everything. What did he leave out? Okay, who, who, where, what's that hymn with the Jeopardy tune in it today that we heard today? Okay, that's going to play. Did you hear him ever once mention the Holy Spirit? He doesn't. He mentions the Trinity, but never once mentions the Holy Spirit. He is extraordinarily focusing on Christ. That's just interesting. Union with Christ for him is not spiritually connected somehow. It, maybe it's implied because he believes in the Trinity clearly. But it's God and Christ and the Holy Spirit is only kind of there somewhere in the Trinity. And I think that's fascinating. Okay, so what do we learn first? The idea of union with Christ was something that the ancient church was beginning to wrestle with. And it was very, very practical as they went to the mission field. Patrick said we need to be conscious of Christ surrounding us. And it is not just Christ with me and in me, but it's Christ in his providential protection in everything. So union with Christ is there, but it's broader, if you will, almost like it's all of God's providence. So the focus of the idea as a, forgive the big word, soteriological emphasis is not unique. It's rather all of providence as well as salvation are part of it. And there's no mention of the Spirit. I'm not criticizing. I couldn't have written something like this. But I'm making an evaluation because it will help us to understand how this doctrine develops. So we come now to Bernard of Clairvaux. We're moving several centuries later from the ancient church, from the uh, 400s all the way to the 1100s. So isn't that amazing? That's about seven centuries of time jumps forward. And uh, just, uh, I love the, the quote that's in the black one. I don't know if you can read it. Uh, Bernard, who's a scholar, theologian, he says, there are those who seek knowledge for the sake of knowledge. That is curiosity. There are those who seek knowledge to be known by others. That is vanity. There are those who seek knowledge in order to serve. That is love. It's a wonderful line. I learn so that I might love others. And the word love is really the heart of Bernard of Clairvaux's teaching. And so we're going to try to look at that now this way. What did Bernard of Clairvaux mean by union with Christ? Because he will deeply develop this idea. We see its glimmer of a great concept in Patrick after seven centuries of the Bible being read. Here comes a theologian who's going to try to create what does it mean to be united to Christ. So here's some of the things we can say about him. Again, I'm sorry for all of the dense reading. If you don't like reading PowerPoints, I'll read it for you, and you can pick up what you, what you can. He says, he sees the mystical experience of union with Christ as most possible in the monastery. So in other words, union with Christ, there's elements where regular people might be able to get it. But this is going to be the specialty of those who are involved in contemplation, who get out of the mess of the world and get into that quiet place where you're just focusing on God. That's the monastery, okay? His treatment grows out of the Song of Solomon applied to the soul and God in intimate union. So we need to stop here. You, as you've read in your Bible the Song of Solomon, you realize that is a very intimate marriage love uh, part of the Bible. And 
here he is, he's in a monastery. He has no wife, but he has Christ as his bridegroom because he's married to Christ. And so he allegorizes that great story and turns it into the image of what union with Christ should be between the Christian and the soul. Okay? So it's quite fascinating. We could only look at a small portion of it, but the soul for Bernard will be the, the bride, and Jesus is the bridegroom. And his view of the union with Christ is basically an extraordinary honeymoon. Okay? Let that image be in your mind. That's what he's trying to think about. So he puts it this way. Union with Christ is a result of grace, faith, and love for God. Quote, when the word therefore tells the soul, you are beautiful, and calls it friend, he infuses into it the power to love, to know it is loved in return. The word is Christ. The soul is the human being soul, and the initiative is with Christ the lover. And he says to the human soul, you are beautiful, and you are my friend. And that love creates a response of love. And when the soul addresses him as beloved and praises his beauty, she, you see the soul is the female, she is filled with admiration for his goodness and attributes to him without subterfuge or deceit the grace by which she loves and is loved. So for Bernard, love is the heart of union with Christ. It is a mirror of the relationship of marriage and it is now between Christ and the soul. He identifies four stages of love. To love oneself for one's own sake. That's kind of where all people start. We're selfish. We care about ourselves. The second is to love for, love for God for one's own sake. I'll love God if I can get something out of him. That's pretty sinful, but that's pretty human too. I'll bargain with God and get everything I can. But then he moves to love for God for God's sake. That there's a point where... As love develops where we love God just because God is God and we love him. And he would say that is the highest level of love that any human can find in this earth, except maybe a few martyrs who learn to love themselves purely for God's sake, no longer for themselves. So that's awaits heaven. But the bottom line is this, is that it is when the third stage of spiritual love occurs, when we love God for God's sake, That is, when she, the soul, will have attained to it and become perfect, she will celebrate a spiritual marriage, and they shall be two, not in one flesh, but in one spirit. You say, well, okay, he was allegorizing the song of songs between the soul and God and the intimacy of it all. What biblical basis does he have? Well, he says, look at 1 Corinthians 6, 17. He was united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That is his theme verse. He said, when you really learn to love God, you become one with him. Just like when you really love your spouse, you become one with them. You become united in marriage. Okay, so that's his idea of union with Christ. Now, there's a lot more that he could say. Uh, Let me just highlight a few of these. Uh, First of all, he will make it clear let me, I'll read them quickly. I cannot restrain my joy that this majesty did not disdain to bend down to our weakness in a companionship so familiar and sweet that the supreme Godhead did not scorn to enter into wedlock with the soul in exile and to reveal to her with the most ardent love how affectionate was this bridegroom 
whom she had won. In other words, it sounds like a real celebration of, of a love relationship, giving the image of a husband and a wife. Uh, he says far more, which I won't read, but let me just note at the bottom, if any of you are interested in a historical analysis, back in 1994, a fellow who was a Roman Catholic uh, theologian named Dennis E. Tamburello wrote a book called Union with Christ, John Calvin, and the Mysticism of St. Bernard. You say, I'd really like to read more about that. That's the book I would turn your attention to if you have interest. Okay, but... Now, what does this spiritual intimacy mean? Well, let me just read uh, the highlighted words in, in the gold letters. This vision is not for the present life. It is reserved for the next. That is, there will not be a perfect expression of viewing God in this world. But, notice the second bullet. But there is a place where God is seen in tranquil rest, where he is neither judge nor teacher but bridegroom. To me, for I do not speak for others. This is truly the bedroom to which I've sometimes gained happy entrance. Alas, how rare the time and how short the stay. My goodness, that is explicit language where he's describing a spiritual intimacy akin to marital intimacy as union with Christ. That's the medieval height. It's quite, quite different. Now, to compare Patrick with uh, this teacher of the Catholic tradition. It's not just the providential care where I'm united to Christ, but now it's my contemplative pursuit of God where I really become one with my heavenly spouse. I am the bride and he is the bridegroom. And uh, it's fascinating. He not only mentions the bedroom in the middle point, he mentions at the bottom when the holy contemplation has two forms of ecstasy, enlightenment and fervor. Enlightenment gives knowledge. Fervor is the moving of the will and the heart. And he says at the bottom, this is not acquired from any other place than the wine cellar. Interesting. <laughs> the wine of gladness. There's an inebriation of the contemplative life where you are overwhelmed. You know, you know that famous saying in France, there's truth in wine. You got to get a guy out if you want to have a business deal. Get the wine flowing. Then you really know where he stands. Well, that's the image uh, of what, what it is, that there's a spiritual wine a spiritual intimacy. Okay, two theologians, very different. Both are wrestling with the concept of union with Christ. Now, what do we do with John Calvin? Where, where does he fit in this? Okay, well, first of all, you might think, well, he's a reformer. He's going to throw all this medieval stuff out the window. But guess what? He doesn't. That's a shock. Get ready. We're going to hear what he has to say. What does he say? Well, John Calvin, on the essential character of union with Christ, we're now in the Protestant Reformation. We are in the 1500s. He's born, I believe, in, what is it, 1509, dies in the 1560s. He said, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. We also, in turn, are said to be engrafted into him and to put on Christ. For as I have said, all that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. Calvin says, there is no spiritual blessings apart from union with Christ. 
This is absolutely essential for everything. So whatever P Patrick might have said, whatever Bernard might have said, Calvin says, I'm going to tell you this is essential theology for the Christian to understand. Now, how does he do it? Well, first of all, he will affirm the mystical union of the believer with Christ. This is from his institutes, he writes, Therefore, the joining together, that joining together of head and members, that indwelling of Christ in our hearts, in short, that mystical union, are accorded by us the highest degree of importance, so that Christ, having been made ours, makes us sharers with him in the gifts with which he has been endowed. We do not, therefore, contemplate him outside ourselves from afar, in order that his righteousness may be imputed to us, but because we put on Christ and are engrafted into his body, in short, because he deigns to make us one with him. For this reason, we glory that we have fellowship of righteousness with him. Calvin is doubling down. He said, we believe in union with Christ. There is no saving benefit uh, without it, and all the benefits we have are united to Christ. And so when you say, well, how does Calvin describe it? There are basically five images in Calvin's writings. I Obviously, I'm going to dwell more on Calvin because he's closest to where we are. He's our part of our Protestant tradition and the Reformed legacy. And he will use the word engrafted. So let's stop and think, what does engrafting mean? Well, some of you know in medicine there's the grafting of skin. Something that's outside is attached and becomes one. You can think of in botany when a branch from another tree is grafted into another and becomes one. Calvin is saying we must be inserted into the body of Christ to become one. He'll call it communio, communion. Remember, that's un union with both sides working to have a, a connection. Fellowship, a society. We become part of a community. Adoption. What is adoption? It's when someone outside the family becomes part of the family. But also, Calvin will, yes, emphasize the notion of spiritual marriage. He doesn't run from Bernard of Clairvaux, but he's going to sanctify it. Let's see how he does it. On Ephesians 5, verses 30 to 32, Calvin writes, When Paul has said that we are flesh of the flesh of Christ, remember that's Adam's words about Eve. That's the marriage language of creation. He adds at once, this is a mystery. He said, okay, I'm not going to be able to explain this. The Bible tells us it's a mystery. For Paul did not mean to tell what sense Adam uttered the words, but to set forth under the figure and likeness of marriage the holy union that makes us one with Christ. And so uh, he will use the word conjugi sacrum. That's marital intimacy. He said there is a sense in which that's what God is doing with the Christian and the church with the bride of Christ. Calvin on union with Christ is spiritual marriage. Here's some quotes. Listen. God very commonly takes on the character of a husband to us. Indeed, the union by which he binds us to himself when he receives us into the bosom of the church is like sacred wedlock, which must rest upon mutual faithfulness. He said the marriage vows require faithfulness to each other. Christ will be faithful to us. We're to be faithful to him. He is our bridegroom. As the church, we are his bride. This union, he says, alone ensures that as far as we are concerned, he has not unprofitably come with the name of Savior. The same purpose is served by that sacred wedlock through which we are made flesh of his flesh 
and bone of his bones, and thus one with him. And let me underscore this now. But he unites himself to us by the Spirit alone. By the grace and power of the same Spirit, we are made his members to keep us under himself and in turn to possess him. Now basically, what if we look at the three theologians that we've considered, we go back to the very beginning, St. Patrick, no mention of the Holy Spirit. We look at uh, the work of Bernard, the whole focus is on the mystical marriage of the monastic contemplative life with the monk and Christ. For Calvin, he's going to say, none of this will make sense unless you understand the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who creates this relationship. He's the one that unites us to Christ, that unites Christ to us, that enables these spiritual realities to be holy and sanctified and true. It is a Holy Spirit reality. Now, this is why J.I. Packer, at least one of the reasons, will say when you study Calvin, you're studying the theologian of the Holy Spirit. I know sometimes we think, well, the charismatics have the Holy Spirit and we have Reformed theology. Well, the truth is, the Reformed tradition has been a tradition of the Holy Spirit. We believe that all these great graces and blessings that we talk about are a gift from heaven itself by the Holy Spirit bringing them to us. And that really was Calvin's highlight. So how do we parallel Bernard and Calvin? Since I noted uh, that Calvin will use Bernard in, his, in the Institutes. So there's several points here. Now, to make sense of this rather uh, expensive summary, I try, try to make them simple. But the ones that are in bold are the ones where there are real parallels between Bernard and Calvin. And the ones that are in italics indicate where there is differences between them. Okay. So what do they agree on? The first basically 10 are overlaps between this medieval French theologian and the Protestant French theologian, John Calvin, from the Reformation. That is, union with Christ is by grace and not by works. Bernard would agree, so would Calvin. Two, this union does not deify mankind, making them the same essence with God. There's no sense by this union that human beings become God. No, it's always a human being re relating to the creator and sovereign Lord. This union is a union of wills. It's where two wills come together. And we, that's what we say when we pray, don't we? Thy will be done. It's not about me, Lord. I want what you want. That's what a, a bride says to her husband and said, you know, I've, I've come to be part of your family, especially in, the, in antiquity. I want what you want. Where you go, I will go. I want your purpose to be mine. Fourthly, God is loved properly when he is loved unselfishly. They both would agree. Authentic love of God will flow over into love of neighbor. When you're truly united to Christ and love for him, it creates a love for the neighbor, for others. Sixthly, there's a special knowledge that comes with this union. For Bernard, it's because of love, and you might not be surprised. For Calvin, it will be because of faith. They emphasize this different tradition of the medieval versus the Reformation. Seventhly, union with Christ means Union with God through Christ and the Holy Spirit. Bernard would agree with that, but it is a minimal point. It's absent going back to Patrick, but it's dramatic when it comes to Calvin. It is the Holy Spirit 
that does this. It's the Holy Spirit's work. Okay? They both would agree that this is a function of union with the church. The church is the family home of one who's united to Christ. It's where the family is. Further, sanctification is lifelong and will only be completed in the final resurrection. Union with Christ doesn't make us sin-free in this world. That is a process. And both use, this is what I'm surprisingly, but clearly, Calvin doesn't run from this medieval language of spiritual marriage because he sees it as a biblical emphasis. When Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, he says, I speak of this as a great mystery, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. It would be one flesh, bone of bone, flesh of flesh. That's a spiritual reality. For Calvin, the emphasis is a spiritual emphasis, but for Bernard, it is far more emphatic and literal in character. And so then the final differences that really stand out, Bernard is committed to the contemplative life of the monastery, whereas Calvin sees this union for all believers in daily life. In other words, union with Christ is not for those who get sequestered and have a place to get away from the world, but it's those who are busy in the world those who are using the ordinary means of grace, worshiping in the church, going about their work, they can experience union with Christ in its mystical power when they're doing their daily ministry. It belongs to every true believer because the Holy Spirit is touching every life with his gospel blessing. So we've seen that Bernard emphasizes love while Calvin emphasizes faith. Calvin sees this union occurring not by some special quest or conditions, but as we've just said, by the ordinary means of grace, particularly the sacraments. One of the great things when you understand that Calvin's doctrine of the Lord's Supper, he said when we receive the supper, we are really united to Christ. It's not just an idea, but it is a Holy Spirit union. It is a real spiritual connection by the Holy Spirit. And so then, obviously a great difference of following the medieval Catholic tradition, justification and sanctification are identified in Catholicism. For the Protestant tradition, justification and sanctification are two different things. Justification is an act, completed, received by faith alone, already real. Sanctification is a lifelong process that never finishes. They are related, but they're different. Catholicism says they're both ongoing and not complete until the last day. That's why you don't know for sure you're going to heaven, even if you're the pope. Because justification is, has to wait for the last day. Thank God for the great rediscovery of the gospel by Martin Luther. We're justified by faith alone. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's accomplished. And that's one of the great things. Okay, a lot of theology and history there, but uh, let me try to make this very, very practical from Calvin's teaching. Okay, Notice what he does now, and we could... Put it under the rubric of Christ alone. We sing that beautiful song, In Christ Alone. This is Calvin's version. Everything is in Christ. Notice how he does it. He uses this from Book 2, 1619. He says, We see that our whole salvation and all of its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. It's in Christ alone. And what follows now from the Institutes are 19 ifs related to Christ and the Christian. Have you ever seen anybody write to you if, if this is true, if this is if, if, if? 
Calvin gives 19 ifs. I've counted them. I list them here for you. And they're all about union with Christ. Are you ready? Here we go. Okay. Calvin's understanding of the vast blessings obtained by union with Christ's life. One, Calvin is writing. He says, if we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. What does Jesus mean? You'll call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Savior. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in his anointing. What is the other title we give to Jesus? Christ, meaning anointed. Jesus Christ. If you're looking for the gifts of the Spirit, you get them in Christ because he's the anointed one. If we're seeking strength, where do we find it? It lies in his dominion. That's also in his title. He's the Lord. Calvin is saying, Jesus, the Christ, is Lord. Jesus, salvation, Christ, all the blessings of the Spirit, strength, he's our Lord. He will strengthen us. If you're looking for purity, look at Jesus' conception. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, utterly pure, without original sin. If gentleness, it appears in his birth. Why? Calvin explains, for by his birth he was made like us in all respects, that he might learn to feel our pain. Christ was so gentle, he said, I will endure everything that a human being endures, including even birth itself. That's how gentle he is. If you're looking for a gentleness in your life, you find it in Christ. Calvin goes on. Number six, if we seek redemption, where do we find it? Well, we find it in his passion. He's the one that paid the price to redeem us. If we're looking for acquittal, to be declared not guilty, where do we find it? He was condemned so that we might be justified. If you're looking for remission of the curse, you find it in his cross. He took the curse that we might be delivered from the curse. If you're looking for satisfaction for your sins, he did this for us in his sacrifice. He said it's paid in full. If you're looking for purification, it's in his blood. His blood cleanses us from all sin. Calvin's up to 11. If you're looking for reconciliation, you need to be reconciled. Remember, he was willing to descend even into hell itself to reunite the lost that had, let's say, the dead, that they might be brought into the full blessings of salvation. If mortification of the flesh, how many of us need to put to death the deeds of the flesh? He was buried, and our death to sin is because we've died with Christ. If we're looking for newness of life, where do we find it? He's been raised from the dead. If you've been raised together with Christ, seek things above. If you're looking for immortality, where do you find that? In his resurrection as well. If you're looking for protection, okay, St. Patrick, you're on to something. If security... If abundant supply of all blessings, where do you find it? Calvin says you find it in his kingdom. His kingdom brings protection, security, abundant blessings. If you're looking for an untroubled expectation of judgment in the power given to him to judge, and that is, are you worried about that final day of judgment? What will he say about our lives? Well, he is our judge, and he can be our redeemer. And therefore, his grace gives us hope and blessing facing that holy judgment of God. Calvin concludes, in short, 
Since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. We should sing in Christ alone as we conclude tonight. Can we do that? Do we have that song available? We may not have it. Okay. It, would, it, would, it, it might fit if we'd been ready. Okay. Let's go back now. Having looked at where have we been, let's quickly review. We started off by saying this is the sum of all salvation, union with Christ. We looked at uh, a good summary from Phil Riken, who's identified these great truths. And then we've looked at church history. We've looked at three great figures, St. Patrick, who really highlights union with Christ but overlooks the Holy Spirit. We looked at one of the great theologians of the Catholic tradition, Bernard of Clairvaux, who emphasizes union with Christ, but it's allegorically based. It's only for the monastery, and it's focused on a spiritual marriage with Jesus and love almost exclusively. But Calvin comes on the scene, and he says, no, this is true, but it's all through the Holy Spirit. But it is all-encompassing. And so John Murray now is a Westminster theologian. We've mentioned him, and let me just give a few final highlights from him, and then we'll open up in a minute for some questions. John Murray on the mysticism of union with Christ. Notice what he says. He wants to remember that analogy does not equal identity. In other words, when we are compared to being in union with Christ, it doesn't mean that we are God. He wants to emphasize, however, that we need to have a recognition that there is a mystery, a mysticism of the Christian life that is beyond ability to theologically articulate. That's pretty amazing for a brilliant systematician who's a great exegete. He said, we are coming now to something that we cannot fully explain, but we have to teach it because it's fully biblical. Okay? So he says at the bottom, we need an intelligent mysticism in the life of faith. Fellowship with Christ means communion. The life of faith is one of a living union and communion with the exalted and ever-present Redeemer. So what he's saying is, is that every Christian is a Christian because of Christ, and you should be in communion with him. You should be seeking to connect personally, directly, in your own heart with Christ. It's not something that the pastor does. It's not something that a theologian does. It's what you should be doing. This is the mysticism, the mystery, that you are united to Christ and Christ is with you. Okay? Uh, notice some other things. Uh, I, I'm just, I'll summarize a great deal here, but I think it's simple enough to let me just read it to describe what Murray's getting at. Christ came, was crucified, died, and rose. This is the historical direction of faith. We look back at what Christ did and said, we believe that. That's the gospel. Because he rose, we now look to the one who ever lives as our high priest and advocate. We don't only look at history where Jesus did all his work. We look at one who lives, who's been raised to heaven, and right now he is our high priest and advocate. Did you know while Jesus has finished his work on earth, he's still very busy in heaven? He ever lives to make intercession for you. Did you know he's praying for you? That's pretty amazing. Pastor John, he's probably praying for you right now. I hope John not to be too weary, too disappointed, too discouraged, too happy. May he be close to the spiritual calling of his life. Because he is the living Lord and Savior, our faith also looks in fellowship to him 
and reaches the zenith, Murray says, of its exercise as it lifts its gaze to heaven. When's the last time you lifted your gaze to heaven and say, Jesus, you're mine. I'm yours. I want you to manifest yourself in my heart. Draw my faith deeper to you. Let me sense your presence. Let this word that I'm reading in Scripture be alive and powerful in my life right now. Is that the way you read the Bible? That's what Murray's telling you. You have a relationship with the risen Christ. He goes on to say, all of this has no comparison in human-to-human relationships. 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9 says it well. I wonder if this describes your spiritual life. Though you have not seen him, I've never seen Jesus. You love him. Though you do not see him, I don't see him right now. I believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Has there been a moment where you've just said, Lord, I can't take it in. You're so wonderful. When's the last time you were singing in the shower? Not because anyone was listening, but because the bubbling out of joy of Christ in your life could not be contained. That's what he's saying. There should be a sense of, I am united to Christ. He is mine. This is not for show. This is for delight. This is a relationship. The life of faith is the life of love, the life of fellowship. It is mystic, sweet communion with him who ever lives to make intercession for his people, who can be touched with the feeling of your infirmities, who has an inexhaustible reservoir of sympathy for you, his people, you personally. He was tempted at all points as we are yet without sin, and so therefore he is with us in temptation afflictions, and infirmities. We walk in the presence of the living God who communes with his people. That's the point of this mystery. Communion is the sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a mental or spiritual level. Thus it is the name given to the sacrament of the Lord's table, and it is the blessing of prayer. Are you pouring out your heart to God, casting all your cares upon him and realizing he does care for you? That's the privilege we have. It is an intimate communion with the living God. It's not mediated through any other person. It's you directly to God himself in Christ. Communion like this promotes sanctification. All the benefits of salvation are in Christ, including that day-by-day walk with the Lord. There's so much more we could say on this, but our time is waning. So Cal, uh, excuse me, Murray puts it very bluntly. He says, the life of faith must not be cold, metallic ascent. All too often, that's what people think of us, people who are Presbyterians and have Reformed theology. We have this stiff upper lip. This is just what we are. We have this metallic, uh, you know, superhero kind of thing passionate heart that loves Jesus. We have a sovereign God that protects us, but we have an intimate ability to connect with the living Lord. The scriptures say truly our fellowship, our union, if you will, is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. That's a fact of the Bible. There's so much more we could say here. Let me come down as I wrap it up with some practical thoughts preparing for next time. What then is this biblical mysticism? 
Murray will say this communion does not equal rapturous ecstasy. It is not some medieval beatific vision where I saw God, I couldn't speak, and I'll never be the same, it'll never happen again. No, it's the living reality of walking with God, leading us to the deposited revelation of Scripture's truth. It's when we come to God's revelation in the Word, we take it seriously, and by the Spirit of God apply it to our hearts, we begin to embrace, for example, the names of the persons of our triune God. We have the Father. Uh, in our reading today, we use the word Abba. Remember that? It means Daddy. Remember when you came home as a child and you said, Daddy? You ever talk to God like that? You're allowed to. He's your Daddy. That's how close you are to Him. All the names for God are to be close to your heart. If you call Him El Shaddai, Lord, you're the only one that can provide for me. No one else can meet this need. I trust you. Do you call him the I am that I am, Lord? Do you exist eternally? I'm so temporary. I'm so flawed. My life is so short. But I am in you. And because you always are, I have life that always will be. I'm united to you. Is it Yahweh Tzedekinu? When you feel like you're so unrighteous, do you realize the Lord is your righteousness? El Elyon, the all high lifted up, the all-powerful Lord of hosts. When you need a protector, say, Lord, you're in charge. I'm in your care. When you come in your spiritual connection to the Son, you say, I have a Savior, I have a Redeemer. You're my exalted Lord. You're my older brother. I'm in your family. I'm a co-heir with you. You are my Lord Jesus Christ. As Calvin expounded each of those names in his ifs. When you come to the Spirit, you commune with him and say, I really need a good lawyer. Would you please plead my case? Plead again the gospel for me. Be my advocate. Be my comforter. Come alongside me. My paraclesis. I need you right here to counsel me. I need you to sanctify me. I'm weak. I'm tired. Help me to be holy. Holy Spirit, you're in my life. Help me to be like you. That's, that's our piety. We're taking the names of God and saying, I'm united to God. Okay. Each of these we grow to experience by the inward witness of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8.16, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We could say it this way, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are united to Christ. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that Christ is dwelling in us. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you pray, you have the privilege to enter into the Holy of Holies of communion with the triune God because we are raised up and seated together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. That's one of those Pauline texts. You are seated in heaven right now because you are united to Christ, Paul says. Our lives are hidden with Christ and God, Colossians 3.3. And so we can say with Hebrews 9.24, we thus can draw nigh unto God in full assurance. Okay. That ought to be our piety because it's what is ours by the mystery of our being united to Christ. If we're not living this way, it's because we're choosing to be spiritually impoverished, not because there's a lack of blessing. This is our portion. 
And so as we get ready for next time, I thought I would give you a concluding quote from Dr. Phil Riken again. So how about this? Whenever we feel as if we've had enough, you ever feel like that? We need to go back to Jesus and learn again that he is more than enough. Christ is all I need. Christ gives me strength in everything. I'm united to him. And so are you. And that is why we go forward in the ups and downs and the struggles of life. Okay, an attempt to take rational pains about a mystery. I can't explain it, but this is what the Bible teaches. Some doctrines we can go very deep and explain them. This I don't know how to explain, except to say the Bible's filled with this truth. And we can see it's been wrestled with all the way through church history. But at the core of it is really coming to grips that the Holy Spirit is bringing the living Christ into each and every believer's life. And that includes you and me. Okay, let's take some questions. John, let's, let's use the, the mic. I had a question and a comment. Okay. Uh, the first question was, do you suppose that the difference between Calvin's view of the Holy Spirit in the union with Christ had to do with the application portion of redemption accomplishment by um, and the traditional differences in in the doctrine of salvation for the Roman Catholic and the Protestant Church? Uh, it's clear that Calvin will believe in the uh, necessity of the spirit preceding any spiritual life in any human being. He's, he's a believer in sovereign grace in that fullest sense. Unless the spirit proceeds, there would be no life. So it has to do clearly with the application of salvation. There's no doubt about it that the Holy Spirit must proceed. He creates faith. He gives the new birth. He effectually calls. All of that's going on. But then in sanctification, which is now the Christian's life, the Holy Spirit is continuing to apply the benefits of what Christ has done, but now not to a non-Christian, but to a believer. And so the Holy Spirit is working just as much in the believer's life as he was when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So there's never a time in Calvin's thinking, I think biblically he's correct, never a time when the Holy Spirit is not the source of the life that we have. Okay, did I answer your question or not? I'm not yeah, sure. You answered my question, and, um, and then the comment was, just because you gave us 19 practical ifs does not absolve you from coming back next week. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say, uh, maybe I can come up with the 20th and pretend like he didn't. <laughs> There's a lot of practical wisdom that we can begin to apply from this that we have not touched yet. Okay. All right. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Uh, well, Wait, let's, let's do the question. Okay. Were you pointing to me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the, uh, I mean, I even need this. I have a lot of points. No, we need to record it. <laughs> okay. um, so the, the traditional interpretation of, of, of the Lord's Supper by the Roman Catholics. Pardon me? The traditional interpretation you know, the way that Roman Catholics apply yeah. the Lord's Supper and, yeah. you know, and the body of Christ and so on. Yeah. And the way we do it as, as, as Protestants, how does that relate to what you're talking about in union with Christ? Because I, I, I see some parallels there. Yeah. 
Well, obviously, if you're going to be consistent in your theology, it ought to impact your sacramental understanding. Your sacraments should not say, well, we believe that, but we practice something entirely different. So the Roman Catholic view, which uh, has become what we call uh, transubstantiation, the idea that the bread and wine literally are transferred into a different uh, reality into the true body and blood of Christ, okay? An actual miracle that occurs. That was not always the Catholic view, by the way. That become, in the medieval period, it became officially the required dogma of the church. So you have ancient Catholicism and then medieval Catholicism, which is the contemporary view as well. So in that view, they believe that you are really eating the body and blood of Christ. And of course, that was the history of why they didn't commune in both kinds. It was a lot safer to put a wafer on someone's tongue than to pass a, a cup that might spill the blood of Christ, which happened. They said, we can't do this. So they justified communion in one kind. So their union with Christ included the actual receiving into their bodies the very body and blood of Christ. That was union with Christ. That was one expression where everybody had a part of union with Christ, but what Bernard was looking at was something spiritually distinct and beyond and above that. It would be not through the sacraments. It would be immediately. There would be this sense of contemplation. And so there are at least a few who have argued that the monastic movement of contemplation actually began to undermine the Catholic sacramental theology because they were saying we can have even a more powerful union with Christ apart from the sacraments by the beatific vision or by the spiritual marriage that we have by faith. So that's one interpretation of what happened along the way. Did the mystical movement of Catholicism actually begin to undermine the establishment of a uh, very strong a mass and sacramental theology that created the context of, well, maybe there's another way to know God than what the church is saying. And that said, well, maybe other theologies ought to be looked at. So it was united, but it was also distinct, depending how you looked at it. Both of them were trying to unite with Christ. Uh, but Bernard was saying it was through, this, through Christ himself coming, not in the supper, but that was not opposed. It would be consistent. Now, Calvin is extraordinarily consistent at this point. What he is saying is that when we are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit through salvation, that is precisely what we're experiencing in the Lord's Supper. So for Calvin, he will say, yes, you really eat and drink the body and blood of Christ. Not because it's recreated here, but because of the union of the Holy Spirit with Christ. Our faith is drawn directly right into heaven. We are joined to him. So uh, it's a fascinating concept that we don't bring Christ down to us, but the Holy Spirit brings our heart and faith up to, to heaven. And there is a true union that takes place. And so that view of Calvin's supper is called virtualism. A true power of union with Christ occurs by faith in the supper. But it is not a literal uh, body and blood recreation or or Luther's version of what we call consubstantiation, if you accept that phrase. But Calvin saw it as a further extension of spiritual union, and he would say it's the same reality, only more fully developed in the life of the church. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. Anybody else? I've exhausted my topic and my, my audience, I think.
Okay. Well, next time we come back, it's going to be uh, very much a practical uh, study. And I'm going to ask you to think about maybe a homework if you're able to come back next time and say, what has the Lord stirred you to think about your experience in union with Christ? If this is true, what does that mean for you? How, how should you deepen your consciousness and your relationship with something that's mysterious? But it's true. Uh, Jesus Christ lives in every believer. You are united to him. The Holy Spirit is accomplishing this. What does that mean? How should that make your life richer and fuller, even though it's not something you can put in full words? What does it mean, and how does it shape your life? I'd love to hear some testimonies if you have any thoughts. Okay? Well, let's conclude in prayer, and then we'll wrap up with a song. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to study a historical topic, one with great practical wisdom, one that is mysterious because we don't know how to describe what you alone are doing. But Lord, we pray that our hearts now would be open to you, to you, Holy Spirit, that you'd come and sanctify us, that you'd write the word of God upon our hearts, that you would cause us to yearn to know you more, a desire to turn from our weakness and sin, to please you, to love you, to deepen our faith. We thank you, Lord, that this is our portion and our blessing. We ask it all in Jesus' name.